and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Hello, today I am joined by Jessica Dolce, who is the founder of the Compassion in Balance program. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Hi. Hi, I'm delighted to have you on our podcast. And yes, this is for me a very new subject even though you know we're going to be talking about compassion and compassion fatigue and and lots of things about self-care and of course who you are in the work but this is a very new topic to me and also a very new topic for the zoo and aquarium and wildlife centers also um, community so it's really uh, interesting and very important also that there's going to be more and more attention to you know all these different topics that are related to you know, caring for yourself and, of course, healthy uh, work environment. So I'm delighted that you're here um, on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really important that we're having these conversations. So I'm excited for the chance to talk with you today. Excellent. So as I said, for me, it's completely new. I have been in your class last year, which is very, very interesting. And, and you know, I studied psychology. so. You know, of course, some of the things uh, rang bells and I was like, oh, yes, I've heard about this and that. But it was really, really geared to, you know, strategies on dealing with compassion fatigue. And I really thought you did such a great job. You're a great educator, very engaging. So we have so much to look forward to in this podcast. But, you know, a lot of people have maybe not heard about you. So maybe you can start with an introduction uh, to yourself. Sure. So I'm a certified compassion fatigue educator, but my background for the last 20 years is in um, animal welfare, specifically with companion animals. So I've both worked and volunteered in animal shelters. I ran my own um, animal welfare nonprofit for a little while, and I've worked in programs uh, for animal welfare nonprofits. So for most of my life, I was doing direct and indirect care of animals. And about 12 years ago, I had my own experience with compassion fatigue and burnout, but I didn't know that that's what I was experiencing. No one had ever said those words to me. And so I just assumed that something was wrong with me personally, that I wasn't strong enough or tough enough to do this work in animal shelters. Um, so I really didn't know how to help myself. I didn't know about any of the strategies that I now share. Um, so I wound up having to quit 
the animal shelter. And a few years later, I left the group that I had helped to build and that I had co-founded. And that was so painful. It was really something I was ashamed of that I quit. And I felt compelled to understand what had gone wrong. What could I have done differently? And so in my own journey of taking care of myself and getting well, um, I eventually stumbled on compassion fatigue resources. And it was like seeing a light go on. All of a sudden, there were definitions and terms for what I was experiencing and strategies and tools and help. And that allowed me to get better. But I turned around and every single one of my friends is involved in caring for animals in some way. And so I felt really motivated to put together some sort of online resource for, in particular, I was working um, with animal shelter workers at the time. And like many of you who do direct care of animals in whatever um, organization or capacity, you do not get paid very well. And so I wanted to make sure that there were easily uh, accessible, affordable resources for my friends and colleagues. And so in 2014, I launched a short six week online class um, around managing compassion fatigue, specifically for people who work with animals. And that became so um, popular that I needed to build more tools. And so over uh, the course of a few years, I wound up transitioning out of working in animal welfare nonprofits and working full-time in my own educational and coaching business specifically around this issue. So today, this is all I do. I support people who work with animals through various online programs and workshops and coaching. And so that's a, the long version of the story, um, but I'm happy to share more or something specific if you have uh, any questions about that. Yes, now I think that is so, such a great story especially the long version of you know how do we get to something and for you that then sparked you know obviously being able to learn how to take care of you but it also you know motivated you to create resources and and then of course found your company and all the all the programs programs and services that you have but I think that personal story um, is so important, right? Because we all have these personal stories of working with animals and the things that we're seeing, the things that we are experiencing and the impact that it has on us. And, and maybe, maybe you could, you know, maybe what we could do is that maybe you share a story of an animal if you're willing to do that. And, and I could do that. And, and we could, you know, talk about how that affected us. Um, I'll, I have an elephant in mind that I talk about quite a lot, and maybe you have an animal in mind that you know is very dear to your heart, that that also you know connects with you. I think um, I just got flooded with all of these different names and faces of um, animals over the years, uh, and it's I'm finding it hard to pick just one, um, but yes. there was a time. In, there was a week in particular of working in the shelter. I worked with the dogs in the kennels. Uh, and there was one week in particular 
where multiple dogs that I had helped to adopt out came back into the shelter um, either dead, malnourished, or were returned and we had to euthanize them. And it was, and I can remember their names, Diego and Honey Bear. I mean, they're all right there. And this is 12, 13 years ago, and I could touch them right now. They're so close to me. And that week was a week where fundamentally I changed, where I really stopped feeling like I could trust not only the public, but that I couldn't trust myself. And so I had loved doing adoption counseling before that week. It was really my strong suit to work with the people uh, and help connect them to the right dog and set them up for success. And from that week on, I no longer felt like I could trust my judgment of other people. And I never felt safe sending any dog home after that week. And so what I know now is that um, I was experiencing compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, and that my worldview had shifted, uh, which is called vicarious trauma. And I no longer saw the world the same way or myself or other people. Everything felt less safe. Um, my view of people was less generous after that. And I know for me, that was the moment, a turning point in my work at the shelter that I really never fully recovered from. Uh, and that really set me off, I think, on this downward spiral of compassion fatigue and burnout that ultimately, maybe like a year later, led to me leaving the shelter. And so I think of these dogs, Honey Bear and Diego and West, and the way that they came back and the failure um, that I felt, this immense failure that I had not protected them. Uh, and it really was an incredibly heavy burden that I know that every other animal shelter worker experiences. And so to your point kind of earlier about wanting to, you know, um, give back to this community once I learned how to take care of myself, one of the reasons why I was so motivated to do this work is because there's something about folks who work with animals. We really need someone who has walked in our shoes to talk to us about these issues. It's, it doesn't work as well for us when someone comes in and talks about general compassion fatigue in nursing or social work or first responders, we need someone who has done this specific work that feels the same way that we feel about animals. Uh, in order for us, I think, to believe that these strategies can work for us, we need to know that the person has walked in our shoes. And so those dogs that week um, has informed so much of my work um, for 12 years now, um, because I can really draw on what it felt like in that moment to have my, my professional and personal world shift um, because of a series of really bad outcomes. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing because these things are not easy. Uh, and I know that, you know, 
of course, it's very important that we that we highlight, like you said, you know, you were doing so many beautiful things, you know, you were getting animals new homes and, you know, adopted out. And so there's lots of joys like, um, you know, I've started to kind of call them the joys and the sorrows of our field, uh, which I'm researching for my PhD. But it's this, you know, how much joy do we see? And then also how much sorrows? What, what are we exposed to? And I think when I'm looking from my perspective, working um, in zoos and aquariums and also wildlife centers and sanctuaries over so many years, is that it's, you know, like you say, you, you can have this shift in worldview where you start to think, well, you know, why are we doing all this to animals? Why are they, when I go out and visit, uh, facilities and it doesn't really matter where because sometimes people think these bad facilities or these really terrible conditions for animals they're only in you know faraway places but they're not they they can be very close to our homes right and so uh, and for me it was uh, yeah uh, i i started to also feel and, and say things like well, are, how is it that people cannot see that this is really, really bad place for an animal to be, right? So you start to also, I, I started to feel as if I was almost losing faith in the human, you know, carer to, uh, and, and a lot of that had to do with education or just not knowing that there's these other ways that we should, are caring for animals and thinking about, you know, caring for animals. And, and I know, and even though I knew that, I was still getting very upset at, uh, but of course, as you're working in a working capacity, you, you're trying to, of course, you know, really reach out and, and work together on making things better for animals so that people can learn things. But I, I started to notice that it really, you know, had an impact on how I was viewing, you know, people and, and wondering why is it, how is it that they've like lost, have they lost their heart? I was thinking these mm -hmm. things and I, and that felt really bad also because, of course they haven't you know they are caring people and they have families and and many of them really want to do a good job they just didn't know uh, necessarily another way and uh, and for me those those were also really uh and losing patience you know like um, there was like so many different things that i was feeling that that uh, i had to do something with because of course as a consultant going out um, you have to try and, and work as constructively as you can in whatever culture that you are. But I remember this one elephant, and I met her when I was working in a zoo or, or visiting a zoo in, in Kathmandu in Nepal. And she made such an impact on me seeing her there that when I did my storytelling exam a few years ago, I actually, you know, talked about this concept that I've then started to develop of I see you because I was feeling so you know bad and overwhelmed and again you know this like how can this happen um, that I, I wanted to walk away I didn't want to see anymore like and that to me was uh, also a real turning point where I'm like I don't want to be that person that don't doesn't want to see the suffering in animals anymore because I can't deal with it anymore, right? And so for me, seeing her standing there, it took me many, many practices to actually tell the story on how she is standing under this like tiny canopy and she's chained to the ground. She's there 23 hours a day. The only time she gets out is when people ride on her back, you know, and she's in this dump yard. 
and uh, and I had to like had to physically hold on to the bars and and say you have to keep looking right and that's that's also not good because you're forcing yourself to do things that are actually really bad for you because you just can't handle it anymore so and and but like like you i i had no idea necessarily about what what this all meant and what was happening to me and and why i was responding in certain ways and and so for me that was a, a journey also to to learn a lot more about this um and i had no idea that you know to, after 20 years of working um of, of study after 20 years of studying psychology that i actually would do this full circle and now you know learn more and more about this um just and from people like you on how you know to in my community to give back on what i have learned about taking care of me and you know how that that can make a difference for them because we have so many joys in our work but we also can be exposed to a lot of sorrows yeah yeah it can be so hard to access the joy once that change starts to happen so all of the joy that i used to feel in my work evaporated overnight the very things that brought me deep satisfaction and um, meaning and joy were became tainted because i felt like i had failed at them and so had i understood how this fit into the bigger picture of trauma exposure of compassion fatigue of burnout i i would have understood that it wasn't just me it that feeling like a failure was normal and that the way back to joy would have been to take very good care of myself and to get more support from other people who would validate that the pain that i felt was real because what i i think what i encountered and maybe this is what you encounter too is when i started to feel really terrible and I was judging people and not being very constructive, which was not the way I was before. But once I started to go down that path, I didn't understand that all of that was a symptom of compassion fatigue. And the way that my managers and supervisors responded to, to me was, you just have to do a better job. Don't think that way. Most people are good. So you'll have to trust them don't don't react that way and they may have been technically correct that most people are doing the best they can and are trustworthy but nobody was validating how hurt i was by these animals dying and being abused after i had sent them home with people that i had judged as safe and because my feelings were never i never felt seen or heard or understood and i couldn't just suck it up and trust people the way that i had before no one was acknowledging that something had fundamentally changed for me and now i understand that that is because my managers and supervisors didn't understand they also did not have these tools did not have this language and so they were just doing the best that they could but it really made me feel angry and in opposition with my supervisors because i felt like they were really out of touch that they couldn't understand what those of us you know that were in direct care or on the front lines were experiencing 
And so I think this is, you know, what has led me to do more and more work with organizations is because we really need everybody to have a common understanding of what we're all experiencing so that we don't accidentally dismiss what our staff is experiencing or, you know, so we don't miss an opportunity to help them um, cope with the risks of the job. Um, and so, you know, that's really led me to what I'm doing now. Yes, no, and I think that's so important what you say there because, you know, sometimes it seems like we're like, okay, we just have to do a lot of self-care, but there's only so much self-care and, and all the tools that you can do. But then, of course, you know, the the responsibilities of the employer and, the, you know, the the health of the workplace is so important, right? So like you mentioned, you're not just working with the individuals to give them tools and resources, but you're also looking from an organizational level as what is important and what needs to be in place. Yeah, for so long, um, the research around compassion fatigue and the resources around this issue were 100% focused on self-care strategies. And unfortunately, it wasn't long before the research started making it pretty clear that self-care is not enough. Uh, but it was like, it had already, the bell had already been rung, this idea of self-care being the way to manage compassion fatigue had gotten out. And for the last 20 years, that's all we've been talking about. And so it's only in recent years that it's gotten louder, this call to bring in organizational strategies to manage this. And so the, I think the good and the bad, the good news is no one uh, has really been um, doing this well <laughs> for the last, couple of decades. So if your organization has not been looking at this through the, the lens of the system, the organization, you're not alone. We're only just now, myself included, really understanding how we need to broaden the lens to be looking at both individual and organizational strategies. And I will say for anybody listening, that self-care is critically important to your well-being. What has gotten clear is that it's insufficient on its own. So it's necessary, but it's not enough nor to help you be well on the job. We really need our supervisors, our teams, the entire organization to be looking at this issue and creating a container, a workplace that is healthy and safe and supports your efforts to take care of yourself rather than undoing the good work that you're doing in caring for your own needs. Yes, and it, from a zoo and aquarium perspective in the sense of, uh, that is of course as true as anywhere else. And for us in specific, we, at least, and, and you absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, but for us working in, say, good, you know, contemporary zoos, in my research, what we have tried to tease apart is, you know, are people actually exposed to, are they, what are they suffering from, to try and understand what are zoo and aquarium professionals suffering from? 
And what we have tried to tease out is in what ways are people exposed to animal suffering? Um, because of course, you know, your stories from the shelters or euthanasia or, you know, severe abuse, while that happens maybe in some zoos or, or really bad zoos, many contemporary zoos uh, are very good places for animals and animals can have very, very good welfare and live very good lives. And, but we still have people that are suffering. So what we have tried to do is, is look at, you know, what are the components? Is it the, like you, like you say, the system? Is it they are burned out from the things that are, you know, too much work, too little time, and, you know, too few people, those things? Or, or what other aspects are involved to, and, and of course, because the, the way, uh, in what ways that you're suffering is also going to color, right? You're going to have different lenses uh, and glasses that you're looking through when you are suffering in different ways. Um, and which might also be related then to how you interpret the animal's well-being, right? So th those are some of the details that that I found very interesting to look at, at how, what can I learn from shelters and research labs, uh, and in what ways are we having exposed to similar things, and in what ways are they different? And I'm sure, because you work with so many different organizations, uh, from universities to shelters, and doing these overarching programs, you must uh, also be looking at a lot of different details, right? Yeah, and what struck me as you were talking um, is that you're, you're absolutely right. Depending on the type of work you're doing with animals, you're going to be exposed to different things. And so if you're in a zoo or a wildlife sanctuary or an aquarium, something where the animals are in, being really well cared for and have a good life, you may not be exposed to trauma uh, on the job. So what you may be experiencing could be something like burnout, which is stemming from the work environment, the same way that it would affect someone working in an office doing accounting, right? It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the animals. It's just the workload or the pay or your hours. But something that I think everyone who works with animals experiences is some level of caregiver fatigue. And so, again, it would you know, vary based on what your job may be, but in a zoo or an aquarium, it still can um, take a toll to be showing up every day and be fully responsible for taking care of another living being's needs, particularly if the animals are getting older, if they have behavioral or medical needs, something where maybe their care is a little bit more in depth. Um, even if there's not necessarily a trauma component, you can feel the fatigue of trying to show up with a lot of empathy and caring for these animals day after day after day. The same way that, you know, in, on a human uh, uh, comparison, it might be like working in um, some sort of home for seniors, for the elderly, where they're really well cared for. You know, their families love them, they're living in this facility, there's no trauma, everybody is really getting the best care, but the staff that shows up every day to take care of them may feel the fatigue of showing up day after day, being compassionate and sensitive and empathetic to those in their care. So there is an element of this that is not necessarily related to trauma exposure. However, I would also say that 
everyone I know who works with animals, no matter what they do, is tuned in to what is happening to animals outside of their organization. So the fact that we know that animals are suffering in zoos that are not safe places or you know, wildlife that is being poached or dogs that are in meat markets, the fact that we know this is happening is how we are exposed to trauma. We feel that weight, I think, in the grief of that I, pretty viscerally. Uh, most people I know who work with animals are troubled by what's happening beyond their workplace. And so I think all of us have some level of trauma exposure related to animals. I don't know if you would agree with that. That's just been my experience. I would absolutely agree with that. Yes. And there's so many people in zoos and aquariums who travel all over the world uh, or, you know, volunteer at the local uh, shelter or anywhere else because they are, you know, committed. They're really concerned about animals everywhere or they volunteer in conservation projects. So, you know, from the individual well-being to the species. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're worried about the, the planet and the environment and no, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point you're making here, this this caregiver fatigue uh, showing up every day. Um, yeah, yeah, so interesting, all this, all these details. And, and it's so helpful also to get clarity, like you say, to get definitions, to get clarity at what is what, and to try and understand all these different aspects, which can then help you uh, in your work, yeah. You know, the other thing that popped up in my head as you were talking about zoos and aquariums, and I don't know the specifics, but maybe you can tell me, is I'm assuming that they, staff will care for animals for the length of their lives, which means they are losing animals at a certain point, even if it's due to old age, you know, it's a, it's a normal reason, there's nothing traumatic about it, but the animals are simply passing away or being euthanized because it's time, um, it's their time naturally. The, the grief that we would feel, right? I'm assuming that the caregivers feel an enormous amount of grief when they lose an animal that they have been in a caregiving relationship with for many, many years. And so that is also another form of trauma. That's a primary trauma. It's happening directly to them feeling that grief, even though it, the, the death itself may have been a quote-unquote good one. Uh, it's, and that is much like veterinarians who are euthanizing family pets that they may have cared for since those animals were, were puppies or kittens. So 15 years, it may be the natural time to let them go, to relieve them of the suffering of being old and having medical issues. But the loss of that relationship is traumatic. That is real grief. And depending on what your role is um, and how many animals you are working with, you could be losing animals daily, weekly, monthly. And so it becomes like a cumulative grief that we're experiencing. Um, there's a lot of it when we're working with animals. So not just euthanasia in kind of that traditional sense that we think about it as something that's really terrible, euthanizing healthy animals because we don't have space or whatever it may be. Even euthanasia that is good, that is really truly relieving suffering for animals who have lived a good long life hurts us. 
uh, and weighs heavily on our hearts. And so all of this, I think, the reason I'm saying this is just like you were saying, it's so important that we have the language to talk about this. We need to be able to accurately label what we are experiencing. And grief is another part of our jobs that I'm not sure that we acknowledge um, openly or that we allow ourselves to feel because it's quote unquote part of the job. Um, but these are real things that are happening to us and we need to be able to label them and to talk about them. Yes, no, absolutely. I know for myself, I worked 15 years caring for animals in, and you know, you're building bonds and relationships and friendships with animals and it's very hard um, to lose them. And, and sometimes it's very brief, you know, maybe um, I had a, a bat baby once, um, only for eight days. And then uh, unfortunately she died, but her mom died. So I cared for her, but then she actually got the same disease as her mom and, and she died also. And that, I was really, you know, really, really sad about that. And um, I, I worked in a rehabilitation center for stranded harbor porpoises. And, you know, you know that they're ill, they're stranded and they come in, but still, you know, you're sad when they die even for the brief moments that they're in your care. And, and it's interesting also at the time, you know, some of my supervisors would say, well, that's just what happens, you know, get on with it. Um, and so that's the other thing, right? In what ways are we building these walls around ourselves to protect? Because, you know, a lot of them are very sensitive, very lovely people, uh, but because they're in the job that they're in, you know, the high exposure of animals dying, um, you know, starts to also, you know, build all kinds of wolves and and the other thing that i just popped in my mind that uh you know there's so no just go back for a moment so yes absolutely so there's lots of you know uh keep, keepers care staff will have you know photos of animals in their lockers or you know scrapbooks or they make mood boards and they do all kinds of things to remember animals some zoos have small gardens or statues or a place where there's place for remembrance there are sanctuaries that i've visited where there is a there is a, a cemetery and there is actually a proper fu funeral burial and you have the opportunity to say goodbye to animals and also when when they have to leave us because they are old or they're ill you know before you know they you can get to spoil them and you can come and say goodbye but just before they they leave us and so there's so many examples of how facilities and people are dealing with grief and and the and the other thing about grief that just popped in my mind when you talked about it is is right now in covid-19 people have reached out and and said and told stories about how they grieve that they are at home and they can't mm. take care of the animals and they are missing them and in their grieving that loss of their job and you know their their purpose and and so that's another type of grief uh, but still um, they they're grieving this loss um, of being connected to the animals so, so there's so much there yeah i've been doing um many webinars every week for the last two months around COVID-19 specifically with people who work with animals. And at every, in every webinar, there is a point where we talk about what we have lost because of COVID-19. And you know, it's everything from having lost family members to you know, losing our freedom or our livelihood. And it's a constant theme that everybody is missing 
being with the animals. Um, you know, there's kind of a, a core crew of every organization that's still there doing the direct care, but many, many, many people are separated from the animals that they love and are worried about them. Uh, and it's really, it is a real loss. There are a lot of losses in this work that we just don't acknowledge. And I love that you're talking about some of the ways that sanctuaries um, and zoos have acknowledged it by having rituals, by being able to say goodbye, by having memorials or cemeteries. Rituals help us um, and they help not only because we know what to do, but also uh, because it validates that what we're feeling is real and that it's okay to have this grief. And most of us who come to this work are very empathetic, sensitive, emotional humans. And so the, I understand why the supervisors are saying, you know, just toughen up. This is the way the work goes. And if that worked, then I would just say, great, keep doing that. But it doesn't. And so I don't know how many more years we have to continue telling staff, just suck it up and toughen up. This is the way it goes. Um, and have that not work before we decide, hey, maybe we need to do this a different way. Maybe we need to approach emotions, grief, psychological safety on the job differently because this attitude of if you can't handle it, just get out of the work, it's not working. It's not an effective strategy. If it was, then we could just stay with it, but it's not. And so um, I just see that everywhere. Um, so it seems like it's pretty universal uh, in animal care uh, organizations, no matter what type of organization you're in. Yes. And of course, I mean, this example is like 30 years ago, but of course we still encounter it, as you say, but there's also so much growth in, and I mean, just look at your company. I mean, you are so busy working with so many different organizations and shelters and you know, you, there clearly is, is, a, is, is a change in the air uh, for quite a while now, I think, uh, that organizations and individuals are really, you know, having more focus on it. And what I thought was very interesting, uh, you, you mentioned psychological safety. And I think there is so much, you know, health and safety, you know, like do not stand on the table for changing the light bulb and, you know, do not, you know, use the drill unless you have had some training. Um, and so there's a lot around physical safety, right? And, and, but there's very little around psychological safety and that's, yeah, something that really needs growing. And, and can you tell us more about what you in your company, you know, do, who you work with and in what ways do you work with them? Because it's so interesting. So for many years, I did things like, you know, one-off workshops with organizations. And what I found was that, and I'm sure this is no surprise, that you don't make long-term sustained change on complex issues by showing up just for two hours or even one day. Um, that's good, but it's usually not enough to really um, make changes at that organizational level um, on such a complex issue. So last year I launched a one-year online program. So it's an entire year of learning specifically for um, animal shelters. I have some veterinary nonprofits that are involved. And this is really about educating everybody um, from top to bottom. 
on things like strategies, both for the individual, but also how do we assess our policies and practices as an organization and start to figure out where the gaps are um, in terms of creating a healthy workplace. And so it's, I, I'm really just starting with this because it, it got clear to me over years of doing this work that I was doing a disservice to my students by helping them as individuals, but sending them back into workplaces that weren't supporting their new efforts to engage with the work differently. And so it was just last year that I really thought I need to come at this from a different angle. And so it's an experiment. I'm seeing you know, the results now as this first group of organizations goes through this program, the Compassion and Balance program. And, you know, I'm gathering information to try to figure out how I can adjust it and make it uh, even more useful. But it is, it's a learning curve for me as well. What is helpful to know is that other fields, child services, nursing, they have been looking at this from the organizational level for maybe a little bit longer than the animal care world. And so there are resources out there that can help us figure out what are some of the basic things that we can be doing to create a safer workplace. And really the first thing is just what you said, that we have to um, start to accept or um, categorize these professional risks, not just as a physical risk, risk to our safety, but that there are inherent psychological risks to our safety as well. And just by thinking of it that way, that compassion fatigue or trauma exposure are hazards of the job. They are predictable, they are normal. We know that our staff is likely to experience them and that it is not their individual shortcoming if they experience this just by shifting um, at the organizational level from viewing and communicating about these issues as an individual problem to a professional risk of the job, an occupational hazard is one of the most powerful early things that we can do um, at that um, organizational level is to stop talking about it as um, your staff's individual problem. Yes, and I'm so delighted that you and I are actually going to work together on a on a paper for a special issue that is all about you know occupational uh, joys and sorrows of people working with animals, and we are specifically going to look at as you talked about risk, but you also uh, talked to me about resilience to, and, and about assessments. Can you say a little bit more about you know, what, uh, what that looks like to you? Yeah, so each one of us has our own risk and resilience profile, essentially. Uh, we come to the work with our past history and our current circumstances in life, and that impacts um, how we engage with the work. And then the work that we do impacts us personally. So there are different things that we can look at, at both the individual, the team, and the um, organizational level in terms of what factors increase or decrease the risks of the job for our staff and what resiliency factors 
um, are present that we can invest in growing or that we need to make sure um, are present in our workplace. And so, you know, reducing risk uh, is really, and increasing resilience is really about creating a workplace that is looking at this issue on a lot of levels from the actual um, health and wellness of your staff uh, and how you provide for them. So basic safety, like making sure that they have mental health coverage. I'm in the United States. We have a terrible healthcare system where not all employers offer health insurance uh, and we don't have a national healthcare system. And so there are people on the job who, not, who are not able to seek out mental health care because their insurance plan doesn't cover it. And so we can reduce risk and increase resilience by making that basic level change by making sure that we're providing a better mental uh, health coverage for our staff. But it's also looking at, you know, do we, um, are we respecting our staff uh, in terms of their time off? One, are we providing them with enough paid time off? But also, are we respecting the boundary between their work life and their personal life? Or are they on call all of the time? You know, these are ways that we can start to look at how do we decrease the risk of burnout, of compassion fatigue, and increase the factors that will lead to more resilient teams. And that also, in, I think, in terms of um, resiliency at the team level, is how do we address conflict and communication? What are we modeling for our staff? And how are we um, supporting them in terms of um, building resiliency together on the job? Are we providing training or activities where they can practice these skills, not just on their own, but together as a team on the job? So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm not sure if I answered your question, uh, but there are many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so important you keep kind of repeating as in, practicing and skills because a lot of times people think like resilience is like some trait that you have or you don't and if you don't have it then you can never get it right uh, but you really yeah. talked about the you know the the practicing the skill how do you build resilience because what does it mean to be resilient yeah i think that's really important um i for many years thought resiliency was something you had or didn't have and i would have categorized myself as someone that did not have it. And it was a game-changing moment for me when I understood that resiliency is like a muscle that you can build for yourself and that there were concrete things that I could do to increase my resilience. It's very empowering to know that this is not a fixed trait. And what's also important to know is that even very resilient people, because there is a genetic component to this. So some people are lucky and born more resilient than others, but even folks who are very resilient naturally may find that their resiliency shrinks, so to speak, because of their work conditions or because of the various stressors in their life. And so it's not something that is static. Uh, it's really context dependent. It's dependent on what's happening at home and at work. And so if we all think of this as like 
an animal or a plant or a muscle, something that we need to attend to regularly, that we need to check on regularly. How are we doing? You know, is, how are we handling adversity? How do we feel when we're in a challenging situation? Are we bouncing back? Are we able to learn from and grow from these challenging things um, and keep attending to it? with care, knowing that it's going to maybe shrink or widen, get stronger or, you know, get less than because of everything that we're going through in our lives and feel that we have an ability to influence this, that we're not just a victim to it, um, that we can take action every day to be helping ourselves and others to be more resilient so we can tap into the joy and the satisfaction and the meaning of the work that we do. It's really important that we see this as something dynamic and not fixed. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think like you also, you know, have said several times now, the importance of being okay and that you are okay and, you know, and that not everybody is the same. And, you know, I often say, sometimes people say, well, what difference can I make in this world, right? I can't just go do an anti-poaching unit, you know, on rhinos in Africa, or I find this too hard or that is too far away or, but it's all about, you know, what is it that you can do and that you feel good with and what you can, you know, build skills in or, and also that it's fine if you are going to be the admin person, you know, documenting the, the rhino poaching. And so everybody has this role, right? They're not like, I don't want to be in some of these terribly dangerous situations because that's just not me. Right. But mm -hmm. I, I, I'm like, it's exciting to think that I could do that. And it's very amazing, you know, the people who do that, but I could not do that. That's just, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. It's too scary. Right. Um, but then to be okay with that, that that is amazing, but that's not the role I could play. And, and that is also a, a very important part of like, so what is a role that I could play and in what ways can I build, um, you know, my skills and resilience to do that role to my, the best of my abilities. Uh, so that self-acceptance is sometimes uh, a hard thing too. <laughs> yeah. And it's an important part, you're right, of being well in this work is to know what is okay for you and you know this work is so much bigger than any one role or one person i always like to envision it as like a chorus singing you know we all have different yes. parts and there are times when different parts of the chorus are louder uh, and the other part, you know, may fall back. And then we trade off and we work together. And the people who are doing some of the more dangerous frontline work, um, that may fit them really well. But they still need people in the offices, you know, doing their payroll. <laughs> they want to get yes. paid. Uh, <laughs> they want people to do the posts on uh, Facebook or send the newsletters to raise money to pay their salaries. So the, the idea that any one part is more important than the other, um, we're also, it's, it's false. We're really interconnected. And by doing what is your strength and what feels right for you at this time, because it will change at different times in your life, what you are able to do. If you're on the front lines, five years from now, you may find it's not working so well for you anymore. And it's okay to change the way you do the work. You're not a failure if you move into an office job. 
you know, or you may find that you're ready to do some direct care. So to be generous with ourselves and accept who we are right now and meet our needs now based on what is happening in the present is really such an important part of being well and being able to sustainably contribute to these causes and to this mission. Yes, and you have said that word several times and it's so important, sustainability. Yeah. So this, yeah, I, I think it's so great. Obviously, you know, some of these things repeat, but they need to be repeated because it's that sustainable across, you know, time can you do this? Because so many people unfortunately leave our field because they can't, you know, the system that they work in or the situations where they can't take care, they don't know how to take care of themselves and it's not sustainable. Um, so yeah, yeah, to be able to do this long-term, how, how do we do that uh, in a nice way? Absolutely. Wow, so many things. It's really, <laughs> can you tell us another really, because everybody wants to hear good animal stories. Can you tell us a, a, a fun, good, positive animal story? I'd love to hear another. Oh, you're, you're, you're putting me on the spot. I am yes. I'm blanking out of all of my animal stories. I'm trying to think of some really good ones. Um, there are so many good ones. And yet my brain is going completely blank right now. Um, okay, I'll start with one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. tell me and then something will come yes. to me. <laughs> yes, okay. So one uh, good animal story that we had is that we had this animal that was, you know, confiscated like like we can't give all the details but the animal was confiscated and you know was really stuck in in a place and we were getting really pretty desperate that there this animal was not going to go anywhere because it's like evidence and everything else and it was a really really bad situation for the animal and then somebody you know came and had a really brilliant idea about finding a location nearby that was actually really good for this particular animal that would be acceptable to the government um, as a good location to house the animal, to house the animal socially, also with some specifics that happen to be in that other location and be then available in case of it being a court case because that's often happens in confiscations right the animals are now evidence and they're just objects uh, as under the law um, so you know people actually you know were worked for many many months to move one animal from a really dire situation into an, a, a very close by location that Actually, at first, you know, was not a, at all considered because, you know, we, we had really other ideas about moving this animal back more to a home range country, but that couldn't, that couldn't work. And, uh, but somebody else had such a great idea, which was being able to house the animal, socialize the animal, have a good place, and uh, that animal uh, being available for, you know, a court case. So I think those are some of those success stories where, you know, people working together, thinking, you know, about options, uh, and it's not ideal, but it's better than where it is, because that's the other thing, right? Sometimes we're like thinking very far out, like this is like the best solution, but there are better solutions uh, in, you know, that we could take um, that are still going to make such a big difference for that individual, uh, even though it's not our ideal solution. So for me, that was such a positive 
um, you know, outcome. And actually that animal ended up going back uh, to the country of origin originally. But just that step was for me such yeah. a, a beautiful story. Yeah, it's the it's good enough. I think that's what you're getting at. You know, we want the yes. perfect or ideal ending, but sometimes we have to be okay with this is good enough. It's much better than it was. Uh, and um, and then I'm thrilled to hear that it really did turn out so well in the long run. I thought about, um, I was, there's so many stories and they're all kind of running together in my mind, but there was a dog in particular this was again, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, a little Jack Russell who came to the shelter where I had been working and she came to us as a breeding pair. So her and another male dog had been basically living their whole life in a cage, uh, breeding, uh, being bred to sell the puppies. And for whatever reason, the owner had a change of heart and surrendered, surrendered the dogs to the shelter. And she was teeny tiny, just the smallest little dog. And she was very um, uncomfortable with people. And it, it didn't take long for her to bite someone at the shelter. And we were um, not wondering if we could place her. And so I offered to foster her. Uh, and I'm a terrible foster <laughs> family, but I really liked her. And so I brought her home and we took care of her and she turned out to be um, fearful, but safe to place. And she wound up going home with a man who, um, I was so worried about this dog. I had become so attached to her that you know, no, no adopter was good enough for me. And so I remember feeling very worried and upset uh, that maybe he wasn't going to be a good enough home for her. And I think that I was crying the day that she got adopted and he saw that I was upset. And it, that was 12 years ago. And to this day, I get um, regular emails from him telling me about his life with this dog. And they have gone on to win agility competitions together <laughs> and travel the world doing all of these amazing dog sports. And he was really a novice dog owner. And she was a dog that was very close to being euthanized. And they live this really big, loving life together. And he has kept me in the loop with good news for more than a decade because he knew that I needed to know that she was okay. And so, you know, that's the counterbalance to the story I told earlier of, um, I was also, you know, I, I was worried about that adoption because so many had gone wrong. Uh, and it not only turned out well, it was the best case scenario. And I still uh, am hearing good news. And that is the counterbalance to all those failed adoptions that I had done. Uh, and so it is really important to remember that there, is, there are so many ways that we're making a difference. We just don't, oh, you know, if he had never emailed me, I would never know this. But uh, I, what I try to remember is for that one person that is giving me the happy ending, the update, there are probably, you know, dozens if not hundreds more that also had a happy ending. I'm just not hearing about it. So I try to envision them living a good life, even though I'll never actually know what the outcome was for so many of the animals that I have touched and worked with and cared for over the years. Um, you know, I try to imagine that they're having a really happy life wherever they are. Excellent. That's, that's such a great and wonderful that you're like being kept in the loop and getting Christmas cards and 
whatever else, you know, like, oh, that's just wonderful. And I cannot believe that you're a terrible poster. Um, you know, you, you oh. know, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Excellent. No, but it's so important, you know, these, these beautiful stories, especially also because we know that, and it makes sense, right, from an evolutionary point of view, but we pay more attention to negative things than to positive things. So we have to remind ourselves, right, of, you know, maybe keeping on a daily basis, like positive things that happen, uh, because otherwise, you know, the negative things come to the forefront so much. So these positive stories are just fantastic. I'm so delighted that you, that you're here in the podcast with us. We have almost talked for an hour. It's been amazing. Is there like a one tip or one nugget that you would love to share with zoo and aquarium and wildlife professionals and anybody else really who is listening to this podcast uh, before we uh, we thank you so much and uh, and say goodbye i think you know what's coming up a lot in the webinars that i'm teaching right now for everyone as we go through covid 19 is just to be really um a good friend to yourself, you know, it's self-compassion to as often as you can to respond to yourself the way that you would respond to a good friend who is suffering or going through a tough time, because there is nobody that you talk to more than yourself, right? We're in constant conversation with ourselves and we're so hard on ourselves. Our self-talk is so critical. And so whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're experiencing, to try to meet that feeling or that experience with a lot of kindness rather than judgment or criticism uh, and to just be the best possible friend and ally that you can treat yourself the way that you would treat the animals in your care and a lot can change just from that friendship with yourself beautiful absolutely fantastic beautiful nugget friend to ourself kindness and self-compassion thank you so much jessica we're going to make sure of course that the links any other information to your compassion and balance program your webinars anything else will be of course with this podcast so people who want to know more who want to reach out who want to work with you they can find you uh, through those links so thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today and hopefully we'll hear more of you and, and we can have you back some other time. Thank you. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.